Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Megan Lagerberg. Is that how I'm saying your name yes, right, Megan? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Will you spell your last name for us? L-A-G-E-R-B-E-R-G. It's Swedish. It's a great name. Yeah. So we're going to talk about infertility. This podcast is Listen, Learn, and Love, and we often mostly talk about LGBTQ, but I like to talk about these subjects that are kind of complicated. And Megan's brave enough to share her story with infertility as as an active Latter-day Saint. And just to give you the big picture, they've been married about 12 years, but they went through all the different things to get pregnant. And they're going to talk about that space that... Um, they did eventually have two daughters through IVF, which is, stands for... In vitro fertilization. So we will share the kind of the end of the story from the beginning. There is a ending here that has two daughters and maybe more children coming, but it's been a really difficult road as we've visited for the last 20 minutes for the podcast. My eyes have been opened. I've never talked to anybody that's really walked this road, and I recognize that this could very well be something that occurs to people that are close to me. Megan offered a wonderful prayer, and I think our prayer is, and Megan's desire to share, is just that we as Latter-day Saints have better insights on what things to say and what things not to say if we're around people that have infertility problems. I'm not even sure the right word. Issues, complications. Issues, all sound so, like, scary. And... And Megan's just brave enough to share that. So we'll kind of start first with her journey with infertility. Then we'll talk a little bit about some of the things that were kind of painful that were said by our members of our church. We don't do that to be critical. We just do that to be able to look inward and see how we can do better. Because I'm sure I would say some of these things. But if I heard someone like Megan talk, I'd recognize why something I might innocently say would be difficult And I think Megan's going to share more about her story of just her relationship with Heavenly Father, because when things go sideways through no fault of your own, it's pretty logical to maybe kind of wonder what's going on with Heavenly Father and and feel some feelings of anger, perhaps. And so those of you that have felt some anger towards Heavenly Father for things not going kind of the way you thought and you doing all the right things, maybe Megan will have some insights on how she's managed that, because I think that's part of mortality. But you offered a wonderful prayer, and there's been a wonderful spirit as we visited. Tell us how many years you've been married. So I've been married for 12 years. Todd is my husband. We met at BYU. Um, we got married in 2007. We graduated from BYU. He graduated in 2009. I graduated in 2010. And at that point, um, instead of going into the work field. I graduated in graphic design. I didn't want to get a job right off. I wanted to start having a family. And so the logical next step was him getting a job and me getting pregnant. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) So That's what we did. (laughs) Exactly. And usually for most people, it happens pretty smoothly. There's no issues. So we, um, my husband was looking for a job and it was during the recession and so he was having a hard time finding a teaching job he graduated with a degree in Spanish teaching and so his parents live in Provo and we moved in with them so that we could start saving up money for what we thought would be a down payment for a house and um, in 2010 we started 
trying to get pregnant. Things didn't go well, so for the first six months, no results. And my mother-in-law said, maybe you should go to your OBGYN doctor and see if there's anything that's maybe, you know, not going right. <laughs> and so I went to the doctor, and she said, okay, well, we'll put you on Clomid. And Clomid is a common medication that gets prescribed to people that, women that don't have a normal period. And so it's supposed to regulate that and help you get pregnant. So I was on that for six months and nothing happened. So I went back to the doctor and she said, I think you may need to go see a fertility specialist. What was kind of my response? Okay. So I call up the Utah Fertility Center in Pleasant Grove, tell them our story, our situation. They said, okay, we're going to have you and your husband come in for this battery of tests, blood tests, all sorts of tests, and we'll see if we can help you out. So with all of these tests, they find out that I probably have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is, it just prevents me from having a normal period. And Will you say that again, the what? Polycystic okay. ovarian syndrome. Really long name. <laughs> it's fairly common, actually. Um, my sister-in-law actually has it as well, and I didn't know that until I started talking about all this. Um, Isn't so it, that interesting that yes. you find more people that are walking the same road when you start talking about it? Yes, exactly. And on my husband's end, they said, well, you have low sperm count and low sperm mobility. And I tease him a little bit and say, oh, yeah, they're just lazy sort of thing. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> So we said, okay, where do we go from here? They said, well, we'd like you to try an intrauterine insemination or an IUI. And basically, they just take the sperm, they concentrate it, inject it straight into the uterus. So, okay. Fairly expensive procedure, but not overly expensive. Um, so we try that. And here I am hoping, okay, this is, this is going to work. This is going to be the solution. First time doesn't take. Okay, got two more tries because they usually limit to, to three because if you go past three, you're, you're really not doing yourself any good. You're just wasting money. And so we did two, didn't help, didn't work. Three didn't work. And after the third, I said, can we please just try a fourth? I really want to try this again because I just want to try. And so I go in for the fourth procedure, and while I'm in the office, I just know in my heart this is not going to work. And that was such a difficult thing to reconcile with, knowing that I'm trying so hard, Heavenly Father. And at this point, I had a really shaky relationship with Heavenly Father. Because we had tried, we, had, we were doing all the things that you're supposed to do in church. Reading our scriptures, saying our prayers, going to church. I was exhibiting all of this faith and nothing was coming to fruition. So the fourth time didn't take. And we go back to our doctor and she says, what I suggest for you is IVF. And that's in vitro fertilization. And it's a very expensive procedure. 
And you have no insurance to cover that. And at this point, we have no insurance. My husband had gotten a job teaching, and we had basic insurance, but most insurance programs, companies, whatever, they do not cover fertility treatments. And so I was not working at this point, and my doctor said, I would suggest that you stop any other medical procedures that you're doing to try to get pregnant and save your money for IVF. So at this point, I decide, okay, I need to get a job, and I got a job working for a scrapbooking company. My husband continued working, and we basically saved up and decided that we needed to make a decision. We had been saving up for a down payment for a house, and suddenly we had to choose between buying a house and having a kid. Wow. So that was, we had to do a lot of praying, a lot of pondering, a lot of communication with each other, and we both decided we don't want to have an empty house with no children in it. We would rather spend that money to try to get, to bring a child into the world. Um, so we saved up for a year. We ended up moving back in with my in-laws. Wow. <laughs> we had moved out. I was like, yay, you know, we've moved out of the parents' basement and we're off on our own. And we moved back in because we knew that it would, I would need the help, for one, if, you know, we decided to start this journey through IVF. And we knew that financially we would need the help as well. So by this point, it's 2012, I believe. We just said, okay, we're going to go forward with this IVF procedure. We start the IVF process, and that in and of itself is a trial. Um, you, As the woman, you have to go through all of these injections, all of these medications, all of these checkups. You have to do ultrasounds. You have to inject yourself with progesterone and estrogen and all these lovely chemicals that normally your body makes naturally. <laughs> wow. So you feel very inadequate. Wow. Yeah, interesting. At that point, I felt broken. I felt like I was being punished in a way. I wondered, what am I doing that Heavenly Father is punishing me? And that's such a hard and terrible way to think, but I I couldn't figure out why it was happening. Why weren't we able to magically get pregnant like the majority of other people? So we go through the IVF procedure, and thankfully we were able to have a child, and it worked the first time. We did one IVF IVF round. We had two embryos. We implanted one. It stuck. And we have a beautiful six-year-old daughter now. Wow. And the second went into storage. So when you have leftover embryos, you put them in storage. And my husband and I would call it the freezer. We would say. That's, I glad you have yeah, some fun. We have a baby on ice is what That's great. we would say. Um, so fast forward four years later, and we decide we want to have another kid. I guess it would be three years later because we started. My daughter was about three. 
So we're like, okay, we've got this extra embryo, you know, first time it worked just great. We'll just go back to Utah because at this point we had moved to California. My husband had got a job out there, which thankfully had insurance that covered infertility. And so that was a great blessing for us because infertility is a challenge mentally, physically, emotionally, and financially. It's this wow. whammy of it's hardships. Like a perfect storm of just all these different things coming together. It is. And it's very taxing. And so we thought, okay, well, the financial part of it is taken care of. So we come back to Utah. We go through the motions, implant the second embryo, and it doesn't take. How long do you know once that an embryo is implanted, if it takes or not? So you implant it, and then about two weeks later, you take a pregnancy test, a blood pregnancy test, and then they tell you if you're pregnant or not. And those two weeks are torturous. <laughs> I'll bet. With all the work you've done leading up to that. Is there a number typically of of what percent of embryos are implanted through IV, IVF IVF that are successful? Um, you know, my doctor told me that statistic at okay. one point, and now I can't remember it. But it's the, pers- the possibility of it working goes down as you get older. Hmm. And so when we started this whole process, I was 25 when I had my first daughter. So I was pretty young, and they were fine just implanting one embryo at a time. But once you hit 35, they consider you to be of advanced age in the fertility world. (laughs) (laughs) 35. So at that point, they usually start implanting um, multiple embryos just to it's interesting. Give you more ch- chances of successfully getting pregnant. So the second embryo from the first IVF did not take. So it didn't take. And so now we're back to square one, basically. So we had to do the whole egg extraction process over all of those steps, all of the medication I had to take to actually ovulate, to make my body do what it was supposed to do. This time we came out with 12 embryos that were viable. And viable means that they're, they have developed enough that you could implant them and they would possibly produce a pregnancy. Do you remember if that's average or is that high or low? I believe that's higher than average. With our first attempt, we only got two, two viable embryos to implant. And so we were incredibly thrilled about that because that gives you that many more chances and of course my husband was a little shocked and thinking we're not going to have 12 children are we sort of thing (laughs) but what most people don't realize is that you need that many embryos because the chances of one sticking is so low and also there's so many things that could go wrong with them in the process Um, especially when you deal with frozen embryos they have to basically defrost them. I love all the refrigerator terms. (laughs) Food terms. Um, They have to defrost them in order to implant them, and during that procedure, they can be damaged. They could realize that they're not strong enough to implant. There's so many things that could go wrong, so you want to have as many chances as possible. 
So we take a fresh embryo from our second IVF procedure. We implant it, and I'm thinking, this is going to work because, you know, the first time it worked, maybe we just needed a fresh embryo instead of frozen. And it doesn't, it doesn't take. <laughs> another curveball. Another curveball. And even though we're not spending as much money, it's still a blow financially and emotionally because again each time you have to do this you're faced with this realization that your mortal body is imperfect and it's not doing what it was created to do naturally so we try again I believe the second time with the frozen embryo didn't work and then finally third time with the frozen embryo stuck wow and our daughter was born in 2017, and she'll be two in August. Wow. And that's, um, talk about where you are now. Are there still frozen embryos? How many frozen embryos are left, and are you still exploring a third child? So after that, we had nine frozen embryos left, um, and... We decided earlier this year we would try for a third child. When I spoke to my fertility doctor, I mentioned genetic testing, and she said, I think that's a good idea for you. And basically, they just take the embryos, they take a little bit of DNA from them, and they do genetic tests to make sure that there's no anomalies, there are no abnormalities, just to ensure that you have the best possible chance. Can of they do that when they're frozen? They do. They do. They do that when they're frozen. Wow. You know, I just realized, like maybe some of our listeners, I don't know anything about this road, and I'm so grateful just to sh that you're sharing a little bit. Um, a few questions. Is it? Um, I don't know. Do you have advice for couples on how long they should go after after they're trying to have a child until they should seek professional help? Because you went after six months, and I don't know if your situation was different because didn't have a regular period or if that was just the norm or any advice to couples. So I would say that if you're a woman who has an abnormal period, go to your doctor first thing when you start trying. Because I think I made the mistake of thinking it'll all work out. I will magically get pregnant when I really had medical issues that needed to be addressed. So I wouldn't wait the six months of trying. That was just kind of my threshold of I'll try for six months, and then if it doesn't work, I'll go get help. And if you had normal period, how long would you say, and you still don't get pregnant? And so there's not kind of an obvious yellow flag, to use a term yeah. I sometimes use in other areas. So you, any advice to couples? Yeah, that would. this is why infertility is so hard to go through, because we got answers as to why we weren't getting pregnant. But so many couples have no idea why they can't get pregnant. And so they'll go years and think, well, it, it will work eventually. It will work. I've spoken to women who said, I tried for 10 years before I finally got pregnant and had a child. And Even with? Even with interventions. I've spoken to people that have done IVF and it just didn't work for them. And they didn't have the financial ability to continue the procedures they spent all their money for the first time and it 
after that, they didn't have the finances to try again. Um, if there's a woman that's aware, she, I don't know the medical term, her periods aren't regular is the only thing, no, I had to say it. So she may wonder if that once she gets married, that may make it harder for her to conceive. Should she do anything proactively before she's married? Um, I think a lot of women like me as well. I naturally, when I knew I was going to get married, I got on birth control because I wanted to have children, but I also needed to graduate from college first. Sure. Looking back on that now, I think I could have saved a lot of money on birth control because the likelihood of it happening funny. was so low. Um, I would just say that to go and get your regular checkups, talk to your doctor, let them know that you have these issues. That way, when you do start trying, they will know and they'll be aware of it. And I would assume there's a lot of women without a regular regular schedule that get pregnant without any challenge. Oh, and yeah. Maybe the majority. I don't know. And yeah, and that happens too. Um, every woman is different. And it's, we, science, we know so much about the reproductive system now than we did years ago. I mean, I believe the first successful IVF procedure was performed in the 80s. Um, so, I mean, that it seems like a long time ago, but it's really not as far as when you start thinking about it. Okay, that's only been 30 or so years ago. Um, and since then, just the, the techniques, the procedures have advanced so much, but you still don't know until you start the process. Was it um, one of the things you said that was interesting for me is you just you felt it was really hard on you to know that your body wasn't working right. And and that I've never thought of that because, <laughs> um, you know, men maybe don't think about that. Um, I guess a man could be responsible for infertility and that would be different. But to then think your body's not working right and in a marriage, in a companionship, you're not carrying your fair share. I don't know what sort of mental roads you went down. That's probably pretty logical you did that. Um, how do you... What advice do you have for others that might go down this road of like this, you know, what's wrong with me? It, when we first started this whole process of trying to get pregnant and failure after failure happened, I really did feel like my body was rebelling against me. I felt, yes, very inadequate as a woman because as a, as a woman, especially in the LDS faith, you go to church and you hear about the blessings of having children and multiply and replenish the earth. And so that's that becomes such a huge part of your identity as a woman who's married that you want to have children. You want to give your husband children. And when you can't do that, it's devastating. And I actually went through a deep depression during that time. I didn't want to get out of bed because I felt so broken. And I think my advice would be, if you're going through this, start talking about it to people. It's such a private matter that we don't really want to get into each other's personal lives. But if you're in, say, a lesson in church and it's about children, maybe be willing to raise your hand and say, it's not so easy for everyone to get pregnant and start having children right away. Um, let's be aware of that. 
And I usually try to make a point of doing that. That's a great, very practical suggestion. Talk about, I assume that this stretched your marriage at times. I know we talked before we went live, you and Todd are in a great spot in your marriage and have a great marriage. But I assume you didn't have any um, young women's lessons preparing you for this road. And I (laughs) would guess Todd sitting in a preschorm as a 16, 17-year-old didn't have a lot of lessons, what if we can't get pregnant? Right. And so I assume this stretched you and and just a lot of marriages get stretched for different reasons. Just any thoughts on what you, I'm assuming you got stretched, what you did to sort of, you know, come close together in these difficult times? Um, therapy helps. <laughs> it's a sign of strength. <laughs> therapy helped tremendously because it, it helped both of us to understand and be able to help each other through the trial. Like I said, it's such a financial burden. Already couples tend to disagree about finances, and then you throw in on top of that this extra expense of just having a child. Normally you think, okay, you have a child, and the expenses come after that, right? We always tease and say that when my daughter requests a car for her 16th birthday, we're going to say, we spent that money getting you here. (laughs) That's how expensive it is. You can buy a new car for the amount of money you have to spend on fertility treatments. Um, So definitely seeking professional help. It's having the gospel is great. We had that shared faith and belief. But we needed that extra mental health help. Yeah, and I think that's a sign of strength, you know, to to engage people that have real good clinical expertise. And I've been open in this podcast that I've seen a therapist twice in my life, and that's been helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and not as and for a guy that's sometimes you're supposed to have all the answers as men. Maybe women feel that too. I just think it's a sign of strength that you're willing to ask for help. I don't know if you've ever thought of this question, but what if you were sitting here with two children that came without any challenges? Maybe you'd have more children at this point. Do you, do you think your marriage is stronger because you've gone through this than if your same marriage existed without any infertility? I think it's been strengthened in a different way. I think my appreciation for motherhood has been strengthened tremendously. And why? It's because you, it's easy to take things for granted that come naturally and easily. But when you have to work hard for something, you realize the value of that. And I've told people before when I talk to them about infertility that. My love for my children is different in that way. I know that parents love their children, no matter how they come to earth. But when you've struggled to get them here, you appreciate them on a different level. And so really I've come to realize how important it is to have the gospel in my life, whereas there was a time where I was very angry with God I I didn't want to go to church, partly because you're exposed to the possibility of having these wounds 
reopened due to Can you give us lessons. an example of the comments you might hear that people like me might innocently say, and there's you sitting over there, Megan, and I'm just reopening a wound. Right. So in one fast and testimony meeting, we lived in Provo. Provo is full of young couples having children, and here we were silently struggling. And I remember a young woman got up and she said, I'm pregnant with my fourth child. There must be something in the water in Provo. And I nearly... I've heard that phrase. Uh-huh. There must be something in the water, you know. And I thought, I wish there was something in the water because it would save me a lot of money. Wow. <laughs> but at the moment, I just broke down and I had to leave the meeting. And my husband followed me out into the foyer and he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I just need to... Because it, it's hard. And... And when you naturally get pregnant, you don't even think about that. You don't even think, well, maybe someone's struggling. It, it's easy to make those jokes. And I know that she didn't say it intentionally. There was no intentional harm. But it's just these sort of offhand comments. Another one was um, we had moved to a new ward, and we were getting to know people. And some of the standard questions you get asked are, how many years were you married without children at this point? Yes, we were married for five years so without five children. five years, new ward, no kids. New ward, no kids. And Something's going up. Exactly. Something's going on with you guys. Exactly. And so I introduced myself, and the lady I was speaking to said, oh, how long have you been married? I said, five years. She said, that's a long time to be married without kids. At that point in this whole process, I Is started that a to open or up. A statement. <laughs> it's it's. <laughs> it's I think one that's of a, those. I don't know what that's a question or a statement. It's one of those foot in your mouth things that you say, and then afterwards you realize that was kind of stupid to say. <laughs> um, at that point, I felt comfortable enough talking about our issues, wow. and I said, "You know, we have been trying for a long time, and we just haven't." been able to get pregnant. We're actually saving up for an IVF procedure. And when I said that, she goes, oh, I am so sorry. I, I'm, I'm so sorry that, you know, you're going through this. Um, did she re-engage in that conversation? Did you become friends with her and did she stay engaged? And that was just kind of a one... It was kind of a one-off thing. And then it was, that was that. That was that. Um, yeah. And it, it's kind of because of those experiences that I've become very careful about what I ask people when I get to know them. Um, one of the other questions is, oh, you know, how many kids do you have or do you have kids? And it's such a simple question that we politely ask, but it may reopen a wound for someone. And it's not even not being able to have children. You may come across a woman who has had multiple miscarriages. Maybe she just had a miscarriage and now all of a sudden you're asking about children. Or they'll say, well, are you planning on having kids? Or, And it's just all these little possible potholes you can step into. Is it okay to ask how long you've been married? Does that... I think that's fine. I think just don't add on the extra commentary. <laughs> I think that's helpful. One of the thoughts that came to my mind is, I was thinking of Eve for some reason in the Garden of Eden and some of the wording in Genesis and in our temple. And 
And I don't know if you've thought about that in your own struggle, but you know, it's interesting. We talk about pregnancy, at least everybody I've talked to, it's the nine months you're pregnant. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's really a hard from what I've seen in my wife and daughter. But it's interesting, you haven't even talked about that. You know, if the if your pregnancies were hard or not, I'm sure at some days it was really hard being pregnant, but you'd gone through all these years that that sort of had context. I'm putting words into your mouth that, <laughs> that I'm guessing that the pregnancy can be hard, and I'm sure you had some really hard days, but in the totality, it probably was a whole different experience than a woman who would, and a man like me has never experienced either side of that, so I shouldn't even be talking. <laughs> I'm guessing that it just gave you a different perspective to be pregnant. Yeah, it did. I don't, I don't know what your pregnancies were like. Um, I actually had really easy pregnancies. Well, I'm glad. It, <laughs> you deserve it. Exactly. After all that, I was like, thank you. I, have, I never had morning sickness with either one of my pregnancies. The births were... My second daughter got stuck <laughs> during the procedure. So that was a little more complicated of a birth. But... There were no major issues that I had to deal with. And you're right that you really start to view that period of time in a different context because all of those physical aches and pains that you get when you're pregnant, your feet swelling, you're nauseous, your head hurts, you're tired all the time, that is nothing compared to what I had to go through just to get pregnant. And you're so grateful to even be pregnant that That's interesting. You, you, those things don't even matter. And actually, with my first daughter, I was so afraid that things weren't going to go well that I didn't even almost acknowledge in my mind that I'm pregnant until about six or seven months along. When people would ask and say, you know, I'm pregnant, yeah, but it's still early. I didn't want to relent and allow myself to feel comfortable in it even. Yeah, your heart, you know, I think you've had a terribly wounded heart. We protect our hearts. Mm -hmm. And if your heart's wounded about the very same pain that you're potentially, it would make sense as a sign of strength to be very cautious. Um, another thought came to my mind about these nine months, but I forgot it. <laughs> um, oh, well. Um Oh, I was going to ask, was it healing for you to have a normal nine-month pregnancy and just feel like, because you kind of talked about how your body wasn't working right, and then now your body's working right. Did that Was that a healing experience, just to feel your body work the way it's supposed to? Yeah. And it, I mean, obviously, when you go in to see these ultrasounds of the baby developing, it's magical either way. I mean, it's wonderful to see this life growing inside of you. Um but especially so for me, it, it made it real and it made me realize, okay, I'm, I'm, it was at that point that I realized that Heavenly Father hadn't cursed me for one. And that's a huge thing because for a long time I thought, Heavenly I've, Father hasn't cursed you. Yes. For a long time I thought, I've done something that Heavenly Father is not happy about. But just realizing that, our bodies are mortal, and they're going to have mortal obstacles involved with them. And this was just, this was no different than me having diabetes or contracting a disease. It was a medical issue. So it was definitely comforting to know that things are going well, and I'm not broken in a way. I just need a little bit of help. 
I, I really like the way you articulated that, Megan. Talk about, as I met with the YSAs, some would be really angry in my YSA assignment for at God, at for various things that occurred in their lives. And I didn't really know how to manage that. I just, I couldn't figure out sometimes, should I give them permission to be angry at God? I mean, we love God. Can we be love and be angry or... Or should I not? And I finally netted out to give them permission to be angry at God. I thought that was probably part of helping them manage their pain and deal with their pain and heal. If they could, you know, I felt agency after a while. You, I sort of felt anger is a, you know, a secondary emotion to pain. And kind of what you do with anger over the long term is where agency really kicks in. But talk about that journey with you because it sounds like you're angry at God. And you got over that. Yeah, (laughs) that's a tough place to be in. Um, It, I think that anger is a part of the grieving process. And when you're going through such a hard trial, you're grieving in a way. And I think anger is one of the stages of grief. Yeah, it is. And I, I started to realize as I, opened up and started talking to other people that had these same issues that it wasn't just me that other women have experienced this and other men because they contribute to infertility as well they've experienced this they've gone through this it is not just something that I'm broken about and when I really started to open up and talk about it and um, discuss it that's when the healing started to begin and I started to realize that I know I'm angry at Heavenly Father, but my anger is misplaced. I'm really angry at the situation. I'm angry that things aren't going the way I planned. I'm angry that I'm not able to just work harder and achieve this like I have been so many other things in my life. And so it really helped. I know this is such a standard primary answer, but when I read scriptures and I would come across things, it helped. And it's it's one. Obviously, you can't go to the Bible dictionary and look up infertility, or maybe you can, because there have been stories of women yeah. in the Bible who have been incapable of having children and the trial they've gone through. Um, so I really relied heavily on looking up faith and trials in the scriptures and reading about how those people dealt with it. I like one of the things you said in there, and I'm going to come back to it to make I sure understand, but I think you said talking about anger is part of having it heal you. And, and so when I'd hear people listen, when I hear people talk up to me about their anger, I recognize that that is a ministering principle to help them heal. And it, this is just my take. I'm interested if you agree. And then even though I may not experience the same anger that they do. So someone has anger towards the church for this reason or that reason or for God, and I don't feel that same anger. At first, I'd probably say, we well, shouldn't feel that way because I didn't feel that way. And then I, as I've, I don't know, grown or just tried to understand, I've given them permission to feel that way. And I don't think it drives a wedge. I think I was worried it would drive a wedge between them and God further if they're angry at God and I validate their anger <laughs> versus just hold hold their anger with them and give them permission. I, I felt over the long run that's actually been the most helpful for them to get over their anger 
so they don't have to prove to me how angry and I don't have to make a have to do a dissertation it's really true I'm angry with God you have to believe me and so they spend all their energy trying to convince me their anger angry versus me just validating it and that just seems to heal them more any thoughts on that validation is a huge thing um I think that when anyone's going through any sort of trial we have the tendency just as humans but especially in the church to kind of pull out the standard answers of you shouldn't be angry because God has a plan for you you shouldn't be upset because count your blessings of all the blessings you have you're young you're healthy you can keep trying it will happen when it's supposed to and I think we feel like we're being helpful to the person, but we're actually making ourselves feel better when we say those things. I think the best thing you you can do is if someone is angry at Heavenly Father for any reason is just to say, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. What can I do to help? Because then you open yourself up to try to have the understanding of their experience. And that's really what a person needs, no matter the situation, but especially in fertility, because you feel so alone when you're going through it. You just want to be able to have someone to talk to and say, this really sucks that I have to pay this much money to get pregnant when people left and right are getting pregnant for free, you know, and just being able to vent about it. And that was really when I started to like I said, not be angry at God anymore because I started to understand where my anger really was focused and it wasn't at Heavenly Father. You know, I just wish I'd kind of learned that about 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) As I counseled with people and as I've dealt with people with anger and I remember a podcast I did with Eric Huntsman at, at BYU, professor at BYU, and he was talking about in the podcast about his son being diagnosed with autism. And he taught me, and he he used the word platitude. He said, people would give me platitudes like this is, you know, this is going to be for the good of your family, or this will turn out to be a blessing. And Eric, I, and Eric said, that's a platitude. And I said, Eric, what's a platitude? Because I've always heard that term. And he described it like you did. Megan, he says, it's something that I say to keep me feeling okay without fully engaging in the pain you're feeling. And Professor Huntsman, Dr. Huntsman, Brother Huntsman, Eric, I use all those titles, said I was really hurting. And to have, I think it's his only son, being diagnosed with autism, and he knew that son's life and his life would be forever different. And as I heard him, I just thought, this is really hard. And if I minimize that with a platitude, I'm not giving, you know, I'm keeping myself emotionally safe. I think that you said that so that, which is great for me because I can just leave and kind of go back to my life, but if I'm really going to minister to you or to Brother Huntsman, I've got to sit within your pain. And to do that, I've got to hear you talk. Mm-hmm. And I can't give you a simple answer that puts it back in the nice, tidy box because it's messy and complicated. Right. So that's very helpful for me. Um, talk about any favorite scriptures or just how, what your relationship with Heavenly Father is like now any scriptures or any church talks or stories that have sort of healed you and helped you? So um, my mind kept going back, going through all this, to a scripture that I'd memorized in seminary 
and it's um, Ether 12. And you grew up in Arkansas. I did. The so great if, state of Arkansas. If you detect a little bit of an accent, it's because I grew up in the South. So Ether 12.6 says, And now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not, because ye see not. For ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. And at that time, I was going through a trial. It, it was a tough trial. And I needed a tremendous amount of faith. And I just had to remember that whatever challenge I was facing, um, I needed to continue to have that faith. And I'm very glad that I didn't leave the church during all this because I've thought before, would it have been easier to just leave the church during this time? And it may have been temporarily. I wouldn't have been faced with the large families and people being pregnant all the time, but I also would be alone in a way. I wouldn't have that to fall back on. I wouldn't have Heavenly Father to confide in and to and to hope I would have no hope of there possibly being something better. And I think that's what the gospel is great at, is giving you that hope of something happening, even though in the moment it feels like everything's falling apart. I like that. I love that scripture you read, and I love where you actually went, what would it be like if I left, mm -hmm. and kind of went down that road. Um because I think that's sometimes helpful to keep us to stay, even when we recognize staying is painful sometimes. And and you may have felt anxiety on Saturday and Friday before church because you knew you might get kind of triggered with a comment at church. Mm -hmm. And so you're protecting that tender heart of yours that's been kind of at times hurt from the very church community that innocently can hurt it. And so that makes sense to me. And I think it's a real sign of spiritual maturity. I'm thinking of your scripture that you just read, Ether 12, six. 6. You receive no witness, I'm paraphrasing, until after the trial of your faith. The, the word witness is sort of the resolution. And and I wondered with you if the, the witness is having children, and that's what is the witness that you got through the trial of your faith, or if I wonder if the witness is just God's love for you. And if you could have even felt a witness and gotten through this if you hadn't had children. And so I, I don't need thoughts on that. Cause... I've actually thought about that before because I know that for a lot of women, they go through all this and they, they, they don't ever get pregnant. They don't have a successful pregnancy. They don't have biological children of their own. And so I think that it's a little bit of both. I think the witness is definitely me having children but I think that if that hadn't have worked I still would have learned the same lesson of knowing that this trial is because of my mortal body it's nothing to do with Heavenly Father punishing me or you know I like that answer and I think it's very empathetic for people that things don't you know don't work out throughout all of mortality and that's where I'm grateful for our our doctrine of our plan of salvation. And I guess if you were a mother that never had kids, I'd still call you mother. Mm -hmm. And I would still, I think we'd both have hope that all of your hopes and dreams in this, once the complete 
your complete life um, story is told and lived, including the next life, that all the hopes and dreams you've ever had will happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that all works, um, but I have faith it would. It's one of the things that I love about our church is a greater understanding of the complete plan. Other things you'd like to share with our listeners, Megan, about your journey? That's a tough one. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question then, and you can see if you want to come back to that one. Okay. Why do you think this makes you a better mom for your kids? Because you've walked this really difficult road, because I think you're a better mom. <laughs> I think Todd's a better dad, and I think you have better skills to be parents now because of the things you've learned, and maybe better teachers at church and just better ministers to everybody in your ward. Talk a little bit about that. I think it, I don't know if it's made me a better mother or not. <laughs> there are some days, obviously, when I, you're dealing with a toddler, you just, <laughs> you're ready to pull your hair maybe some of that will come when they have need to have real adult conversations yes. about complicated stuff. Yes. I. It has helped me tremendously in being able to empathize with other people that maybe don't fit the stereotypical mold of a church member, especially the LGBT community. Yeah, you have one of our prior guests in your ward. I Yes, I was in the ward with Timber Harvard. Yeah, and so, one of our gay members. Yeah, and so I got to hear his story through your podcast, and it that really is what helped push me to, I need to do this too. And so I... It's so hard when you're going through a trial to think this will make me stronger. And I am incredibly grateful for this trial. And it's it it's bizarre to come to that point, but if I hadn't had this trial, I wouldn't have learned how strong I am, how strong my marriage is, how beautiful it is to be able to have children. There are so many things that I learned. And so it's definitely made me a better minister in that when I see someone who's struggling, I, I don't go to those platitudes. I, I think, what would I want to hear in my own trial? I love that, Megan. I just, you know, you're in your 30s and you have so much spiritual maturity because... You talked about this perfect storm of emotional, mental, physical, and financial, and I think it stretched you in a way that there's great paydays down the road for you. And yeah, maybe at a young toddler stage, they <laughs> it's harder to see those, but I would guess as your daughters and maybe a son age up and need to have conversations in their teenage years and 20s, and as you serve in the church and the community, you just have framework to lead other people out of the desert and I haven't read this quote, listeners, in a few episodes. You know, it's my favorite quote. Um, certainly applies to Megan and all of us, really. Uh, it's called The Wounded Healer, the, a minister service. And you're a minister. We're all ministers, so it's not just someone that's in charge of a congregation. But The Wounded Healer, I'll read it again. A minister service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from the heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks, the great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. And so, you know a desert, Megan, that few of us know. And, you know, some of your other 
friends that have been in that same desert and you create great bonds of friendship if you're walking that same road together. But I think you form a set of skills that obviously lead can lead people out of multiple different deserts. That's one of the reasons I think we love Elder Holland, the broken vessel talk, because he talks about some of his own, he's vulnerable. And that leads us to connect with him. So I think I think this is part of your ministry, is to be able to lead. And I love the phrase, a wounded healer. We're all a little wounded. <laughs> I don't think God wants us to not be wounded. It's just part of mortality, and our hearts are all wounded. The more people I meet with and the more I look at my own heart, it's, they're all wounded. We all have really difficult things we go through, and I think it's part of our ability to grow in mortality and and then to be able to honor our baptism covenants to mourn, bear in comfort. And I think that's one of the paydays for you that maybe is occurring now, but will certainly occur in the rest of your life, is the ability to help and heal others. And that's part of the great plan of, you know, it's just the way we need each other. Mm -hmm. um, other thoughts you'd like to share before we close? I think I've just about <laughs> expended my <laughs> pearls of wisdom. So Well... On behalf of all our listeners, Megan, it's been really wonderful having you on the podcast. And it's just what we want to talk about in this podcast is, I don't know if to call them the taboo subjects, but just the subjects that are harder. And as I recognize our listens are perhaps over 10,000 an episode now, according to my podcast guy, that I think there's a lot of people that want to have these conversations. And I think a lot of them are just members like me that want to hear from people like you so we can just do a better job. Um, so I would now know if I were a listener, and I've been a listener on this podcast just today with you, what things just to be able to do better. I think LDS people and probably all people, hearts are good and wants to say the right things, but we just need education sometimes and some of these more complicated topics. And so I love... And our family situation is just the opposite. You know, we got married and you've heard all the stories. We had six kids in 10 years and, <laughs> you know, there's no way we, and it just, that was just clicked for us. And you know lots of those stories. And, but for me to really understand your situation, I've got to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And it helps me as a father of six kids, you know, my wife and our parents of six kids, I, has, I have thought in the back of my mind that some of those kids may walk the road that you have, and you've given me skills and insights if I'm ever walking that road with our own kids. It will be very helpful for me. So thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>